Well, thank you. It's an honor to be here today. As Gina mentioned earlier, I grew up in New Canaan, and I attended school here in Greenwich. I was very active in both Young Life and in Focus in Fairfield County. And starting in high school, my sister Emily and I began attending this church. And so I'm deeply grateful to Stanwich for the impact that it has had on me, especially during a deeply formative time in my own life. And I've always had a sense that God's Spirit is resting on this church. It's always seemed as if God has his hand on Stanwich. I just never thought that I would ever be speaking from this pulpit. So thank you for this great privilege and the opportunity to bring God's word to you today. One of the things that I am most appreciative about when it comes to the Apostle Paul is that he was a strategic thinker. He not only had an ambitious mission in terms of spreading the message of Jesus throughout the Mediterranean region, but he had a brilliant strategy for how to carry it out. Paul thought in terms of regions, and so whenever he targeted a particular area, he focused on the towns and the cities that were connected by a system of ancient roads and trade routes and through networks of people so that he could ensure that his message achieved the greatest possible reach and had the most deep impact as possible on a particular geographical area. And it wasn't just Paul. If you read through the New Testament, you realize that the earliest Christian communities were constantly sharing with one another. They were sharing leaders. They were sharing letters. They shared people and ideas, financial resources, and theological convictions so that the gospel might continue to go forth and change the world in which they lived. And that is essentially what brings me here to you today. Our two churches, Sandwich and Central, are sharing their leaders. As Nathan goes to Central, I come here to Sandwich. And part of the reason why is because we share overlapping relationships. Some of our people end up moving to Westchester or Fairfield County and find their way to Stanwich. Some of your people might go off to school and graduate from college, move to New York, and find their ways to Central. But it's not just that we share overlapping relationships. I believe that Nathan and I would both say we share a common dream. And that common dream is that more and more people throughout this metropolitan New York region might experience for themselves the life-giving and life-transforming message of Jesus. And we believe that the church does not exist for itself, for its own benefit, but for the good of the wider world. And we want both Stanwich and Central to become increasingly like the church in Thessalonica. And so what I'd like to briefly do today is take a closer look at what God actually did within this community and what we can learn from it for our own churches today. And so I'd like to look at this opening passage to the letter of the Thessalonians by asking two simple questions. What happened and how did it happen? So the first question is, what happened? Well, here's the context. During the course of the Apostle Paul's travels, he made his way to this large seaport town of Thessalonica, located in northern Greece, 200 miles north of Athens. 
And this was a cosmopolitan city filled with people from all different kinds of backgrounds with many very different perspectives on life. And quite unexpectedly, there were a number of people, some from a Jewish background and others from a Greek background, who received the message of the gospel when it was brought to them by Paul and his traveling companions. And Paul recounts for us what happened. He tells us about how when the Thessalonians heard the message of Jesus, it was almost as if a, a strange power gripped them. It took hold of them, and the message made sense to them. They, they grasped it, and it changed their lives, and subsequently filled them with both excitement and with joy. So much so that Paul tells us that as a result, people from hundreds, literally hundreds of miles around, had heard of this surprising action of God in their midst. How people who had been so committed to a pagan Roman background suddenly turned, made a decisive break with the past, and received this startling new message about this person named Jesus who had died and who had come back to life again. And Paul therefore concludes that he doesn't even need to say anything to anybody about it. Why? Because everybody already knows. Now, Paul uses a unique expression to sum up the effect of the gospel upon these people living in Thessalonica. He says in verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Now, the word that he uses, sound forth, is actually one word in the Greek. And this word provides us with the root for the English word to echo. And it's reminiscent of the blast of a trumpet or perhaps the ringing of a bell. And the idea here is that our faith is supposed to make a sound. It's supposed to ring out from our individual and corporate lives. It's supposed to echo and reverberate among the people who live in our midst, pointing them to the reality of the living and the true God. And so what Paul tells us is that the word was starting to get out about what God had done in Thessalonica. And I would suggest that the word is getting out, that God is at work and on the move here at Stanwich. And perhaps the word is getting out that God is also at work at our church central in New York City. You see, just as God brought this new church to life for the first time in Greece, so God has brought our old church back to life in New York City. So for those of you who may not know, let me just share a brief word about what has happened recently at Central. Our church is a nearly 200-year-old church that is currently housed in a beautiful neo-Gothic building originally constructed by John D. Rockefeller Jr. in the 1920s, and it was nicknamed the Little Cathedral. And despite the fact that this church had strong beginnings and was quite influential in its early days in New York City and indeed throughout the world, and despite its amazingly strategic location, right smack dab in the middle of Manhattan, this church entered a period of substantial decline during the back half of the 20th century. And so by the early 2000s, the congregation had dwindled down to a mere handful of people and reached the very brink of collapse as a result of significant theological drift and poor financial management. 
I was told that in the early 2000s, if 15 or 20 people showed up for Sunday worship, that was actually a good day. The average age was probably 75 or 80. No one thought that children would ever enter the sanctuary again. And most people had resigned themselves to the fact that the church would die when they died, and they were just fine with that. The church had run out of people, out of ideas, and out of resources, and was as good as dead. And at least in my experience, when a church dies, it stays dead. But not in the case of Central. Because by God's grace, beginning around 2006, a small group of people started attending the church. They thought, this is a terrible shame. Here's this amazing church with a fantastic legacy and an incredible location for spreading the message of the gospel, and yet it's dying on the vine. But they thought, well, if there's only 15 or 20 people going, maybe 15 or 20 of us could start going too. And then we could influence the church in a more positive direction. Now, there were so many obstacles standing in their way, and humanly speaking, there shouldn't have been a way to move forward, and yet God seemed to clear one hurdle after another for this little church. And so as a result, now, thanks to the faithful prayers and the enterprising efforts of a small but dedicated group of people, we've seen this old church burst back to new life, far exceeding even our wildest expectations. So whereas there may have been 15 people attending in the early 2000s, there's over 500 people attending there today. So we are incredibly grateful for God's work in our midst. And the question that we have to ask is, well, how does something like this happen? How does a, an old, dead church in New York City come back to life? Or how does an entirely new church in the Mediterranean world come to existence in the first place, despite all the different forces that might be opposed to such a transformation? And the answer I would suggest in both cases, the answer that is provided for us here in our passage this morning, is the gospel. It's not because of great insight or wisdom or great leadership, although all these things are important. It's not merely because of a posture of humility or dependence upon God, as critical as those things are. No, the way in which God brings a new church to existence and the way in which he brings an old church back to life is through the power of the gospel. And you see, what Paul does for us here is he reveals that there is a pattern to the way in which God works. It is the gospel that brings the church into existence, and then the church in turn spreads the word of the Lord. And we see here in this passage that Paul lays out for us three steps. First of all, he tells us that the gospel came to the Thessalonians in verse 4. Verse 6, they received it for themselves. And then verse 8, the gospel in turn sounded forth from their lives. So the first point here is that the gospel came to them. Well, how did it come to them? It didn't just drop out of the sky. No, the gospel was brought to them. Specifically, it was brought to them by Paul and by his companions, Silvanus and Timothy. Now, there's a lot of people who are fond of quoting St. Francis and saying, you should preach the gospel constantly and, if necessary, use words. 
And I understand what people mean when they say that. They mean that you need to put your faith into action. If you're living out your faith, well, then your actions will speak for themselves and you don't need to use words. But that is probably not quite right. The first reason is because St. Francis never said that. The second reason is because the gospel, the word of the Lord, is an announcement. It is news. And news needs to be verbalized in order to be shared. So one of the things that I love to say is that the gospel is good news, not good advice. Now think about the difference. If I were to sit across the table from you and tell you, I've got some really good advice from you, for you, what are you expecting me to say? You're expecting me to say something that you need to do. Now, this advice might be good. I might be telling you to try a new diet or a new exercise routine. This may, in fact, very well be good advice. But it might also be a matter of my own subjective opinion. And above all, the onus is on you to do something in order to affect this positive change in your life. But imagine the opposite. Imagine I sit across the table from you and I tell you, I have some really, really good news. Well, that creates an altogether different expectation in your mind. You're not expecting me to tell you to do something. No, you're expecting me to tell you something that has happened. And this isn't a matter of opinion. No, this is a fact. I'm about to tell you news of something that has happened that positively changes your situation for the better. And yes, you might need to respond to that news in some way. If I tell you that I'm going to offer you a new job, well, then you've got to show up for work. But the point is that this news conveys the idea that the decision has already been made. The work has already been done. And you see, the problem is I think most people think that the fundamental core message of Christianity is good advice. That's what people think. Christianity is, is good advice. The gospel tells you how to be a better person, maybe a better Christian. It tells you how to make the world a better place. But no, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not good advice about what you must do for God. The gospel is good news of what God has done for you that fundamentally changes your situation here and now for the better. So what is the gospel? The gospel is that God has come to us. He has come to us despite our spiritual rebellion, despite our failure. He has come to us in the person of Jesus to reconcile us in relationship to himself and to make the whole world new through the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That is not advice. That's news. That is an announcement. That is what needs to be declared, and it has to be communicated through words. Now, of course, words can be disregarded. Words can be misunderstood. Blind eyes and hard hearts cannot see or accept those words for what they are, which is why eyes need to be opened. Hearts need to be softened. And that's why Paul tells us that when the word came to the Thessalonians, it didn't come as a mere word. No, it came in power. You see, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit opens up our blind eyes, softens those hard hearts, because the Holy Spirit's job is to assure us of the truth of the message and then to drive it down into our hearts with power. That's how 
the word came to the Thessalonians. In word and in power, with full conviction, in and through the Holy Spirit. And so what happens? Step two, they receive the message in verse six. They receive the message for themselves. Even though this is startling new news, even though they weren't expecting it, even though they weren't looking for it. And notice the context. Verse 6 tells us that they received this message in much affliction. See, there were plenty of people living in Thessalonica at the time who were opposed to this new message of Christianity. And I don't need to tell you that there are plenty of people in New York City and in Fairfield County, Westchester County, who are unfriendly to the message of Christianity. Oftentimes they say, yeah, I, I, I know what that is and I don't want it. Although oftentimes it seems to me they are rejecting a caricature of Christianity and not the real thing. And therefore, in fact, they don't know what they're missing. But the point is that oftentimes there is opposition to this message. And that's what happened to the Thessalonians. They experienced difficulty, hardship, setbacks. And yet, nevertheless, they receive the message with joy in the Holy Spirit. They experience a joy that transcends their circumstances, that, that lifts them up, that changes their lives. And for that reason, it would be impossible for them to keep it to themselves. No, once having experienced this life-transforming joy, they have to share it with the world around them. And that is why, thirdly, the gospel sounds forth. It rings out from their lives so that everybody everywhere now knows that these people have turned from their dead, mute idols to serve the living and true God. And this is what happens everywhere when the gospel is truly received in that life-giving life-transforming way. We can't keep it to ourselves. We have to share it with the world around us. Well, let me share a, a humorous story from my past. Some of you may know that my first job out of college was as a sales analyst at an investment bank in New York City. And I'm still friends with the woman who initially hired me for this first job, although I was not prepared for some of her rather unconventional interview questions because I sat down in her office straight across from her, from her desk and, and she immediately fired away with questions. And the first question she asked me was, do you love money? <laughs> and I said, I think money's important. Makes the world go round, it's certainly efficient. But no, I don't think I love money in the way that you're imagining. Well, that wasn't the answer she was looking for. <laughs> So then she asked me a second question. She said, are you wild and crazy? I think she could tell that I wasn't. <laughs> she said, around here, we like to work hard, play hard. We like wild and crazy people at this firm. Are you wild and crazy? And I replied, I have a pretty good sense of humor, but no, I'm probably not <laughs> wild and crazy. Clearly, the interview is not going well at this point. <laughs> then she says, Jason, this is a sales job. I need to know if you can sell. Can you sell? And I said, well, I recently convinced some of my classmates at school to join me on a trip to Rwanda, Africa, together with World Vision. And she said, Jason, that is not selling. And I said, I, I know, but I thought it was worth a shot. And then she asked me one final question. She said, who is your idol? Who's your idol? 
And at this point, I'm sure she was hoping I would say, Steve Jobs, <laughs> Bill Gates, Warren Buffett. But I thought for a moment, I should have said Jesus, but I chickened out. <laughs> I had read a few books by Mother Teresa in preparation for this trip to Rwanda. So I figured Mother Teresa would be a good answer. I'll say Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa is my idol. Well, at this, she gets up out of her chair, flies out of her office, and leaves me there all by myself. <laughs> and I'm thoroughly convinced that the interview is over. I've not gotten this job, but I'm not sure if I'm supposed to leave, if I'm supposed to stay. And I'm scratching my head trying to figure out, how is Mother Teresa offensive? I thought Mother <laughs> Teresa was the safe answer. But then she comes back into her office a few moments later, and she's got a book by Mother Teresa in her hands. And she said, I just gave this book to the woman down the hall this morning. Mother Teresa's my idol, too. And she basically hired me on the spot. <laughs> but think about that. I said, I don't love money. I'm not wild and crazy. I can't sell. And Mother Teresa is my idol. I was bound to go into ministry. So here I am. But I'd like to come back to that final question that she asked me. Who is your idol, which is really just another way of saying, what are you really living for? Everybody has to live for something. Everybody has to live for something that will give their lives meaning and purpose. Everybody is living for something, looking to someone or something to assure them that they will be okay and to remind them of who they really are. And you see, the people in Thessalonica, they, they worshiped idols. And these idols were their ultimate source of significance and security. And so we may not worship idols, but we certainly worship God substitutes. We have other things that we look to as that ultimate source of significance and security in our lives. So you may not bow down to idols, but perhaps you bow down to the gods of money, sex, and power. Or perhaps you bow down to the gods of wealth, beauty, status, recognition. You may not worship the god of wine, but maybe you're addicted to all kinds of things that never deliver what they promise, just like an idol, because an idol is a dead thing. But you see, though our culture may be very, very different from that original culture in Thessalonica, the message is the same. The message of the gospel is it doesn't have to be this way. No, you can live differently. You can turn. You can turn from these alternative sources of significance and security, and you can turn to the living and true God, the one who does deliver on what he promises. And you see, that's the opportunity that is afforded to us. And that's what happened in Thessalonica, and that's how it happened. And the only question that remains is, what happens next? And that's easy, because what happens next is you. Now, if you have not yet turned from those alternative sources of significance or security, now's the time to turn to the living and true God. And if you have, well, then now is the time to let your faith sound forth, to allow it to ring out from your life so that it echoes and it reverberates through your words and your deeds at home, at work, 
in your schools and in your neighborhoods, through your areas of responsibility and your spheres of influence, so that everybody everywhere knows the truth that God is actually at work. And you see, if you do that, and if we do that, then Stanwich here in Greenwich and Central in New York will become beacons of light, beacons of hope throughout this whole New York metropolitan region that will point people to the truth that God is not dead. Oh no, God is very much alive. And God has not abandoned the Northeast. Don't believe what they say. Now he is at work and on the move. So let your faith sound forth. And then we won't have to say anything to anybody because everybody will already know. May it be so. Amen.